Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. I wanted to let everybody know that Durf is going to be doing an edit marathon on the wiki from basically by the time this goes public for a full week plus maybe even an extra bonus weekend. So if you feel like contributing to the wiki, even just little things, you might want to check out any of the links that I post and see if you could donate some of your time to help get this stuff cleaned up. I'm also going to try to switch over to cleaning up some of the retro RGB pages. I was going to work on another video to post for this weekend or next weekend, but I feel like I'm going to put that on the back burner and then try my best to get to some RetroRGB.com stuff. But anyway, thanks to Durf and thanks to all of you for the help. But let's jump in and see what we got for the Q&As this week. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer wanted to follow up on last week's question and asked why I didn't mention the 4K Gamer Pro. So the question from last week was how to get all of their consoles to 4K and with possible smoothing involved. So the S word right there, smoothing. As soon as you said that, the 4K Gamer Pro went out the window because that's a sharp scale, not a smooth scale. That said, if you want to scale 2D games on any platform, I guess, I would always recommend a sharp scale. Almost always, I would think. It's really the 3D graphics games that I think, depending on your taste and depending on the game, can benefit from a smooth scale. Um, and also, of course, you would have to get whatever signal that you were feeding it to 1080p because the 4K Gamer Pro only accepts that. So if you're talking about GameCube, you would have to run that through like a RetroTINK 5X into the 4K Gamer Pro into your TV. And once again, that would be a sharp scale. So hopefully that clears that up. Also, different topic, would using a wired USB controller with a really long USB extension cable cause any noticeable input delays? No. Um, it's an excellent question, and it's one that we've theorized on before, and I, I think, I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody actually did the math as to how long a cable would have to be before the signal started to lose any noticeable delay. So, you know, in, even in the microseconds, and it was nuts. It was, it was an incredibly long cable. What you might worry about with really, really, really long cables is would the USB power be able to reach that long. And, you know, I think in the case of controllers, you wouldn't be able to see the TV if you were that far away. But if you were listening to this and you're just wondering about that for any other devices, like for me, I have a bunch of equipment farther away that's connected to my computer here via USB. Just use a powered hub. So I get a long USB cable going from the PC all the way over, and uh, then the powered hub is plugged into the wall, and all the other stuff's plugged into that. That would solve it. But uh, I also do that because I plugged a bunch of stuff in that would probably be more than the amperage that one USB port could handle anyway. So it's a, you know, if you can use a powered hub, sometimes, most situations, I would say it's a, a good idea. But yep, hopefully that points you all in the right direction. Next up are a couple of questions from Mike. First, they're going to get one of the Retro Gamer Store Super Nintendo shells, and we're wondering if there's any problems with not using the metal shielding. So, no problems, but there's definitely a few things to note. The standoffs are the exact same size as the original, as they should be, because it's supposed to be the exact same as the original, just clear. So, those standoffs are compensating for the extra width of the metal. So, when you're screwing the motherboard down don't over tighten. Make sure the screws go down so that they're touching the motherboard and the motherboard isn't flopping around, but there's no need to go any tighter than that. Otherwise, you could flex the board a little bit since there's less space. Um, I, I guess I would give that advice to anybody reassembling any console, period, but it's something to really keep in mind with that. But other than that, those metal shells were there for EMI interference. Sometimes to prevent it from releasing interference that could affect other things, and other times it was to prevent other stuff from interfering with it, or a combination of both. But you'll notice that not all consoles all around the world use the same metal shielding because of different standards and different types of testing that were implemented. And in the case of the Super Nintendo, I don't think I've ever needed it. Now, the PC Engine, and I think the Turbo Graphics require that because they use that as the ground plane, but I think in almost all cases, you don't need it. What I would recommend, uh, for a couple of reasons, I would recommend keeping it because it's a piece of the console. If you ever decide you want to make it original, or if you ever want to sell it, whatever, you have the original stuff with it. Or if you ever run into an issue. I don't imagine this being something that is common 
but it is at least plausible that depending on how much other equipment you have in that room, how much other analog equipment is powered on at once, it's plausible that you might, say, see occasional analog interference on the screen and go, oh, that's weird, and put the case or the shielding back on and it goes away. It's not likely. It's not common. I don't. I have never experienced that myself, even in the city with all the crazy interference, but it's not impossible. So just save it. Uh, next, they'd really like to get one of the DEX boards for their DE10. That's so funny. I have uh, just been working with Marcus on a, testing a new firmware for that, actually. Um, but they're incredibly lazy and don't want to keep switching between the RAM for using Mr. and the board. Do I know if there's a way to use either on the opposite side of the DE10 nano board where the other RAM stick would go? Yes. So Marcus sent me a test firmware that does exactly that. The only difference, and in fact, that's exactly what I have now. It's plugged into the other side. The only difference is that cable should be a little bit longer, um, the cable that you have to make to connect it for audio. So that that's the only difference, and that should allow you to leave a RAM stick in there and allow you to just swap the micro SD cards, kind of like a cartridge between both. Um, but you might just want to double check and um, it, you know, I think just check the DEX firmware, and if you don't see it, message Marcus or, or just post, you know, wherever the main... Uh, I think Marcus is posting on one of the forums predominantly, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it should work perfect. If not, it's at least safe to try. You're not going to plug it all in and explode your DEX or, or the DE10 by doing it that way. So give it a try. If you have any issues, and eh, take it out and see, but I don't anticipate any issues. Good questions, though. Over on YouTube's monthly support service, FedEx128 just got the 4K Gamer Pro so they could sharp scale all their 1080p sources, including the RetroTINK 5X, but the issue is not all of the PS3 library supports 1080p. What are my thoughts on using PS3's component output to the 5X to have both upscalers combined make the image 4K? So that's kind of an interesting one, and I would say if you already own all of this equipment, the best thing to do would be every 1080p game, which I think there's 90 of them, go from the PS3's HDMI output directly to the 4K Gamer Pro, and anything other than that go through the RetroTINK 5X. Now, I certainly wouldn't tell you to go buy a RetroTINK 5X just to get the PS3 games that you want to 1080p to go from there, but if you already have all that stuff, that seems like a really great solution. I... Have I always have HDMI issues with my PS3. I think the early implementation of HDCP was broken, so you might need one of those HDMI devices that makes the PS3 compatible, but uh, in the video that Wobbling Pixels did, he showed PS3 working through it, so as long as you have the 1080p games, that should be fine. But yeah, I would actually just do both, and uh, I would kind of select which one you want. The only pain, I guess you could have the PS3's component going, uh, or plugged in at the same time as the HDMI, you would just have to select in the menu which one you'd want to use. So that would be kind of your workflows. You would have to power it on, decide if the game is 1080p or not, switch your PS3's output, and then kind of select your signal chain from there. But it's totally doable, and it might be a great addition to some of those games that could benefit from a sharper scale as opposed to a softer one. So yeah, if you have all the equipment, do both. Um, and if not, if you don't own the RetroTINK 5X at all, um, which you said you do, FedEx128, but if anybody else is listening, if you wanted that sharp scale but you don't have the TINK 5X, just turn the 4K Gamer Pro off. Or I think if you just leave it, it'll automatically switch to pass-through mode if you just send it a source that it doesn't understand or isn't 1080p. So, yeah, cool combination, though. Now, switching over to Patreon, Mr. Morrow had a question about the Dolby Surround test files that I had posted for supporters last week. Basically, I'm working on a video that shows people how to make sure your modern receiver is in the correct mode to use older surround formats on older games, or heck, even VHS tapes if you're, if for whatever crazy reason you would want to do that. And it's basically just gathering information to see whose receiver works with it or not, if anybody has any issues. To be honest, the main video was supposed to be out already, but life happens. And, you know, with the, the wiki edit, I might not even get to it for another full week. So we'll see. I, but this is a video that I think is important because basically, how do you know you're getting the proper channels coming through? And Mr. Morrow wanted to try and confirmed that it worked on their receiver as long as they set it to the proper mode. And it worked through 
the the spit of digital connection it worked through left and right and it worked through uh, a console being plugged into the tink 5x plugged into their stereo via hdmi which is exactly what i expected so thank you for confirming i guess i'll leave a link if anybody wants to just try it themselves and just in, in the comments of the youtube video if you want to leave your your results with it and i'll have the full video posted in a week or so that'll be more of the the fancier videos and I guess maybe this is one of the many reasons why people say you should have two channels, the main and the side. I probably should have been sharing this with everybody on the side channel, uh, taking feedback, and then finishing the, the bigger, higher production video. But I, I guess I'll try to figure that out again still. So, I mean, asking people to subscribe to another channel is rough, so I'll, I'll figure that out. But anyway, Mr. Morrow, thank you for your feedback. Much appreciated. And uh, hopefully I'll have that video out soon enough. Next up, Cam offered to send me their LG Arcuda arcade monitor if I was interested in checking one out. Yeah, I, I would love to. Um, it would be not a fancy video. It would be a live stream like a lot of the ones that I've been doing where I basically just, you know, take your unbox it, uh, flip on the camera and then go from there and just kind of lag test it, see how it scales, compare it with another scaler. Uh, suggest it for use in you know in other places. But yeah, I would love to. And then I would, you know, I could gladly pay for shipping if you wanted to. As long as you're not like on the opposite side of the planet and shipping's going to be 200 bucks each way. No disrespect. I just, <laughs> I could buy the monitor for that. <laughs> um, they said, unless it's amazing, they think they'll use something different for their full arcade build. But if it doesn't totally suck, they could probably throw it in a bar top build for their kids. Uh, to be honest, um, I mean, I don't think this is going to suck. It just might not be as good as something for about the same price. But worst case scenario, as long as the resolution, uh, the, as long as the lag isn't terrible, depending on different resolutions, it should just be good enough, especially for like a fun secondary setup. And especially in cases where it's just easier to have something light that you don't need to rebuild an old CRT. So I, I don't think it's going to suck. I just don't think it might be what they're claiming it is the end all be all replacement for arcade stuff. But yeah, absolutely. And cam said they don't plan on using actual arcade boards. They'll probably be using a mister and other modern devices. Uh, so that actually would be pretty easier or, or much easier. So even if I test and find that the 240p scaling sucks, if you run it at its native resolution, which mister and a raspberry Pi could definitely do, it should be totally fine. So yeah, I'd love to see it. Uh, I'll, I'll reach out. Thank you very much for the suggestion. And hey, hopefully a few weeks from now, we'll all be seeing a live stream with this thing. Next up, Gemini Man said they've purchased an SNES cartridge, but it has a musty smell. Do I have any advice for the safest method to clean the cartridge's PCB board? Cleaning the pins is easy, but is it safe to use isopropyl alcohol on the rest of the PCB board? So yes, but there are some precautions. What I like to do personally is I give it what my friends have nicknamed an alcohol bath, where I, I basically go over like a basin sink. I don't ever use my real sink because I don't want to cause any. I've done this before in a real bathroom sink and it left like a film and then I have to sit there scrubbing it off. So a basin sink, someplace safe outside, whatever. But I'll just pour isopropyl right over it and not like rubbing alcohol like um, this stuff right here, like the MG Chemicals 99% pure type of thing. And then I'll take an electronics brush. You could probably use a toothbrush, but I don't like it because some of those toothbrushes have coatings on them. And I also don't like that. It's my OCD. I don't like visualizing a toothbrush because then, you know, the next time I go to brush my teeth, I'll half asleep. I'll be like, did I use this by accident? <laughs> so I spend like a dollar on a bag of electronics brushes and I pour the alcohol over it and I scrub the heck out of it. Uh, and be careful, obviously, you know, there are some components that are much more fragile than others. If you're scrubbing an IC, you know, with, with the thick pins that are through hole, go right ahead, scrub in, scrub both sides. If it's really dirty, I might even pour a little bit more isopropyl over a second time to wash it off. And then I take compressed air to blow it all out. And then before I power it up, I I, I don't leave it in direct sunlight like don't don't envision retro brighting when I say leave it in the sun. Like very often I've left it right in the window in direct sunlight through the window. I've left it on, uh, you know, a table outside sort of in direct sunlight, but it's for the UV rays. It's not for the heat. 
You don't want to heat this thing up. You don't want to, you know, I'm sure it's not good for it to leave it in the sun for a long time, but at least like five minutes just to, or I guess if you're in the middle of the desert, two minutes or something, but it's the UV rays to get the rest of the isopropyl out. Because remember, when you're talking about using liquids on boards, technically speaking, water itself isn't the problem. It's the impurities in the water, which is why when you see people correctly do things like take a dishwasher, bring it outside. People usually uh, use like their secondary dishwashers or if they go to, to buy a new one, I've seen them take old ones and then they take distilled water and that's the correct dishwasher trick. You use distilled water for it and then same thing, put it in a UV bath afterwards or something like that. You know, like a, a UV tank, you know, compressed air. It's the people who actually just use water are definitely destroying their motherboards. And I just even recently had somebody say that they did it and they did it years ago and their boards are fine. So they don't know what people are talking about. That board will absolutely someday die as a result of that. Most of the time it's within months. Sometimes it takes a while because maybe you got lucky and the impurities stuck to the spots that don't corrode that easy, but it definitely is not a good idea. So I know that's not what you said. I'm just saying it for the context of, you know, people listening. So Using 99% isopropyl, like, like this one that I've been using for years, uh, an electronics brush, and then letting it dry in UV rays, including just, you know, hitting it with compressed air and in the sun for a couple of minutes, should be totally, totally fine. And if anybody has any other thoughts on that, I'm, I'm all ears, but I've never heard a problem doing it the way I just explained. Never. So uh, other than, you know, if you scrub really hard with a brush on a soft component, maybe that could be an issue, but I think that should be the safest. And um, it's also kind of safe to do that on the inside of the plastic. Just wipe it off really good afterwards because, you know, obviously the, the back half, depending on if there's a label, you might be able to wash, but, you know, like the cartridge and console cleaning method I've always shown, but the side with the sticker on it, you're obviously going to want to be pretty careful. So give that a try and let me know what you think. Next up, the dressing gown said they know many people like to mod Noctua fans into PlayStation 2s, Xbox, and Dreamcasts, and they believe that the PS2 has a stock 7-volt fan, where the Noctua fans are 12 volts. So would that potentially cause long-term damage to the PS2? So I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure in a situation like this, it's very likely that you're going to shorten the life of that fan because you're not running it at the voltage that it's supposed to be run at. But I don't think there's any chance of you hurting the PlayStation 2 because unless I'm missing something, and unless the Noctua has some hidden circuit in there that I just forgot about, basically you're sending 7 volts down the line and it's just spinning the fan slower than it normally would have because it's not reaching the full voltage. But the fan was designed to run at the full voltage, therefore... Um, there might just be a longevity issue there. But I've done it before a lot when I needed to, and I, I hate saying this because this is the worst nerd advice to give, And but I've done that a lot, and I never had any long-term issues. But, I, you know, there could be different scenarios that, that kind of that have different issues. The one thing that I will say, though, is Noctua fans, their company sells a kit with a potentiometer where you could plug their fan into it, and it lowers the voltage. And or lowers the fan speed, and I'm not sure if that's lowering the voltage or if it's sending some kind of signal to it, but I, I just, I don't think it's going to be the most unsafe thing you've ever done to do that. So, you know, your last question, is there any long-term risk in running the Noctua fan that I'm familiar with? I don't know of any long-term risk for the console. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never heard of something like that when it comes to just basic fans. But, you know, that fan might not last quite as long. But I don't think it's going to be a huge deal. I don't think you're going to buy a, an expensive $20 fan and it's going to die in a month. I just think it might be more of the long-term side of things. But please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm always open to new information, and I, I never mind being wrong. I just want to get the right info out to all of you. Green Devil just finished building the 1.4 revision of The Necessity, and it was a very fun project that had lots of soldering practice. They're very happy to have saved a rusted old front loader from a store that was trashing it. Every component on their build is new, with the exception of the CPU, PPU, and timing crystal. So they want to know my thoughts on, do I think it's safe to play their cherished cartridges on projects like 
the Necessity or Opentendo, which are designed for exactly what Green Devil just talked about. You have a board that's broken or having a bunch of problems, so you remove the CPU and PPU, you build these new ones completely from scratch with all brand new components, put those CPU and PPU in, and now you have basically a brand new homebrew NES. And my answer to the question of, is it safe to play cherished cartridges on? Just test your work when you're done. Everything's done, power it on, test the voltages. If it's the same as the original, then you should be good to go with no issues. As long as the voltage is the same and the cartridge slot connector that you used isn't one of the crazy ones with the death grip or if it's flopping around in there, I would say that it's completely safe to use. Just double check the voltages because, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've done something like put a 750 ohm resistor where a 75 ohm was supposed to go, power it on, and the guy get no video, and I start freaking out and realize, oh, I used the wrong resistor. So just double check your work. Also, Green Devil just got Tim Worthington's NES RGB version 4 in, and they're also planning to add uh, RGB with that, with a clear shell from Retro Gamer Store and a new Triad PSU. It's starting to feel a little over the top, but a fun project. I completely disagree. That sounds freaking awesome. That is exactly what I love to see. You're using original chips as well as a bunch of original components from the case, but a whole bunch of brand new homebrew stuff to breathe completely new life into your front loader NES. So I think that's awesome. And I'm, you know, please post pictures. I love stuff like that. Final thing, uh, would I have any concerns? So far, so good, but they've read at least one post where a user had the PPU fail after some time. Only concern is voltages once again, and are all the components correct? Double, triple check yourself. The, to be perfectly honest, it is possible that something happened in the cases where the PPUs failed that was a result of these projects. But in, without actual proof, it's also equally possible that that PPU is 30, 40 years old and or 30 years old and it gets to a point where it's just about to die anyway and you were maybe using it every now and then on your flaky old NES you put it in the brand new one with the motherboard uh, new motherboard and everything's working great so now you're using it for hours on end and that's what killed it just normal use and it would have died anyway so of course you know you always if possible you would want to double check in that scenario and see if you could troubleshoot and figure out exactly what happened but if the if there's no proof either way it it could just be anything so um, i personally as long as i tested the voltages on the cartridge port tested the voltages on the cpu and ppu I don't think I would worry. It would be different if, um, you know, if the Open Tendo project was released, 100 people made them, and 30 people were blowing out their PPUs. That would be different. But it, it I, have not, I certainly have not heard that, and it seems like just a handful of people must have had issues. So I don't think I would worry, but, um, you know, just double and triple check your work and keep an eye on the different forums and Discord servers in case other people are having issues. Oliver Clare has a couple of questions about things that I don't have direct experience in, but I think I know the answer to at least one of them. The first question is, if you have two PlayStation consoles with a link cable to connect them, so kind of similar to the Dreamcast link cable video I did with Destiny, but PlayStation 1, would it still work if you had, let's say, an original console and an X-Station, or one with an X-Station and one with a SIO? Would it work, or would the ODEs break compatibility? And I have a guess. Now, this is a guess, so please correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but I believe those link cables use software protocols to sync the two consoles. And I would also guess that developers would have realized that, hey, CD drives and CD mechanisms, no two are going to be exactly the same, because whenever you're talking about stuff that's spinning and all this, you know, even just gravitational pull of the earth depending on where you are it's impossible to get them to the you know 0.001 percent the same whereas full digital kind of is possible to get it that way so my guess is that developers took this into account and they aren't relying on both cd-rom drives and lasers to to hit at the same time they're relying on the communication protocol to say send receive send receive and if that's the case it would mean that it should be completely 
100% compatible with any solution that runs at the same speed, which technically could mean also Mr. versus an original one if somebody were to make a snack-based link cable or something like that. Now, that's all a guess. So if I just made an ass of myself and that's not true, please make fun of me in the comments because, uh, you know, I don't like guessing. But from a nerd perspective, that makes sense to me. The other question, though, would there be any issues in linking consoles from different regions? So would an NTSC X-Station PS1 connect via a link cable to a PAL SIO PS run running the PAL version of the game? And that one I cannot answer, but hopefully people in the chat might be able to, because I barely have any experience with PAL consoles at all. I had no access to them here, I had no access to the games here, so I just, I'm the worst person to ask for PAL stuff. My apologies. Uh, but if, has anybody tried that? Has anybody tried, even with two original consoles, taking a PAL uh, PlayStation 1 and a PAL game with an NTSC PlayStation and an NTSC game and connecting them with a link cable? My guess is that it would not work because it would be slightly different timings, uh, but I could be completely wrong about that. And I, I hope I'm wrong because it would be neat to link stuff together that way, but uh, I'm going to have to defer to the chat on this one. Sorry, Oliver. One more from Oliver, a pretty interesting one. They recently got a nice 32-inch CRT that came with a 5.1 matching surround sound system with it, and it seems to be one of those custom surrounds, kind of like you would see with Bose, how they have their proprietary cables and connectors, and you can, you're supposed to only use it with their subwoofer module and stuff like that. And I could be wrong. This was just at first glance at the the picture that Oliver uh, pictures that Oliver posted, but um, there's a couple of things involved in this. First, does this old setup, or is this compatible with 5.1 ProLogic surround, so the older formats? My guess would be yes, it would probably be compatible with ProLogic 1, maybe with 2, but just play those test files through it and see. If you if your 5.1 speakers go all the way around you, then there you go. It's a, it's a win, and if not, that's cool too. But the other question is, since they can't, since they don't have all of the original cables with it, what do I think they should do, or what would I do in their place? Do they just abandon those speakers and then connect both of these CRT and the flat panel to a brand new modern setup, or try to track down the original cables and use a combination of both? And my personal answer to this would all be resulted in room placement. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, you have a setup like this, where you have a CRT in the middle and a projector that goes down. If that's the case, I personally would have everything running through my fancy NED receiver that I love that I got to do a video on at some point. Mostly love. The HDMI support is shit and NAD knows it and they're not fixing it. But other than that, it's actually really good. Um, however, if I had a setup like a CRT in a corner over to the side and then like an OLED on the wall in the middle... I actually would love to have a scenario which that CRT had its own little stereo setup. And in fact, um, that's one of the things that I, I eventually, I'm so far behind. I have a 2.0 channel audio video I want to do. And that is the exact scenario in which I'd put that little NAD two channel amp to the CRT, have two really nice magnetically shielded bookshelf speakers there. And I would actually have two setups and I just wouldn't use surround for the older stuff on the CRT. I would find a way to, to move that in front of the projector. But that's going to be completely up to you. And, and you know, it, it really totally depends on your placement and what you would like to do. For me personally, though, if you had the ability to pick up those old cables cheap, I think it would be pretty neat to just have that to use. Or, or have that even if you left it in a box somewhere just to keep it as a set together. And you never know. Maybe sometimes or maybe you might swap that CRT with another one and have a secondary setup or give that to a friend as a complete set or something like that. So I, I would at least try to take the time to hunt it down. And as long as it wasn't too expensive, I wouldn't waste a ton of money on that. But I would kind of try to have both. Um, other than that, you said... Uh, would any extra adapters be required to get the CRT and its audio working with modern equipment? I would skip it at that point. I wouldn't do a hybrid. I wouldn't take some of the audio out of the CRT's 5.1 and some and mix that with another external receiver. I would really do one or the other because you never really know what you're getting at with those. Like I have a very cool TV that I think my buddy Dave's getting that has an S-Video input and speaker outputs. So at any time, if you wanted to, you could just hook up some nice bookshelf speakers and disable the CRT's internal ones. 
in that case, I think it might be neat if the internal speakers ever died. I actually think the speaker that's built in is totally fine, but whatever. Um, but I don't think I would use that just by itself because now you're using secondary audio technology that was stuck in after the fact into the CRT. But I've run into scenarios where those are okay and not. And I think the best example is old CRTs that have VHS and DVD players built in. Sometimes you'd stumble across one that was really well built and it was very cool to have everything all in one. But more often than not, the quality of the VHS player or DVD player that they stuck in that wasn't great. And very soon after purchasing, only a few years, you'd have a working TV and a dead VHS player or something. And I think that's what a lot of these CRT add-ons were, kind of just bonuses. Hey, we could stick a cheap audio amp in here. So if you want bookshelf speakers, go for it. Um, but you never know. Maybe that one's awesome. So that's a, a very cool thing to mess with. I'll leave a link to the full model TV in there. Um, and if anybody has that exact one, maybe knows where to get the cables or something, please post in the YouTube comments. Next up, Tony Shadwick said, I've suggested the ship Modi as a DAC multiple times now, and they're ordering something from Tindy that is made by Benny Skate. It's a seven input, two output automatic digital audio switcher, and it can include a DAC. And for reference, the thing that Tony's talking about is one that I, we've promoted on the site that I've talked about quite a bit before. It looks really cool. It looks like an awesome digital audio switcher. And in the drop-down menu, you could select what inputs you want, how many outputs, and if one of the outputs is actually a digital to analog audio converter. And that, the one from uh, on Tindy from Benny Skate uses an ES9023 24-bit Saber DAC. And for reference, the Ship Modi uses an ES9018. Obviously, Shit's a big name producer, and this one is some rando on Tinder, but I'm going to take a chance on it. Um, so, honestly, all of these products come down to how well they're built. And that is not a dig or a compliment to either Shit or Benny Skate. Uh, by the way, I'm not swearing. That is actually the name of the, of the DAC. I'll, I'll try to leave a link to that in the description as well. Um, but, honestly, if... You could take the best audio chip in the world, and if the board isn't routed correctly, if, if two boards are routed exactly the same, but one just uses a slightly different secondary component, you could change a lot of things about that. So it really all comes down to how they're made, and when it comes to digital audio, it is a little bit easier than analog audio. And that's certainly proved by all of the very cheap $10, $15 digital audio boxes I've tried that work perfectly. And even some of the more expensive analog or digital to analog stuff that does, works far from perfect. So, uh, you know, this is one of those things that I would be very comfortable recommending the Benny Skate switch for digital. And in fact, I, I keep... Try, I keep thinking about buying it, but then I'm like, I know it's going to happen. If I spend the, the money on this thing, it's going to arrive, and then I'm going to change my setup and never need it. And if I don't order it, I'm going to decide that I definitely need it, and it's going to be out of stock. It's that typical, you know, going back and forth. Um, but, I mean, I think that if you bought it, it's really worth it, it's really worth the taking the chance, especially if you already bought it, because absolute worst-case scenario you're most likely going to get, and I haven't tested this yet, but you're most likely going to get a perfectly working seven input, one output full digital switch. And if the analog output isn't as good as something like the Ship Modi, I'd be willing to bet it's infinitely better than any of the $10 boxes you can get on Amazon. So I think, guessing, that this is going to be one of those cases where it's you're, you're splitting hairs on which one's better. Is one better than the other? Uh, as long as Benny routed that one properly and used all the other components around it well, then I think that should be totally fine. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about audio is unless you're doing something like MD Fourier analysis or, or any kind of pro-level... Um, putting this on that type of thing, it does really come down to your preference. So, you know, I, I've heard lots of people love these cheap devices that boost bass. So you kind of have a meh DAC, but you get a lot of bass out of it. People love those because depending on what you're watching, what you're listening to, that might be better for their room and their scenario. And I've heard people argue over the difference between two you know, $5,000 decks that I don't think I could ever tell the difference between. So it's really up to you to decide what you think about it. But um, I think it was worth taking the chance. 
I've never heard anybody complain about Benny's products. And, uh, you know, please let me know what you think of it when you get it. And one of these days, maybe I'll pick one up too. Gavin K does streaming for Super Smash Brothers events on the Wii and GameCube and had a couple of questions regarding video transcoding and CRTs. They're looking to get the component video output of the GameCube and Wii converted so they could have a high-quality gameplay capture while using more readily available VGA monitor CRTs on-site as they can't travel with their CRTs. Adding no additional latency and reliability are the important points here, so they wanted my thoughts on a couple of solutions. First, convert 480p to RGBHV VGA to play on 31 kilohertz monitors. What would be the most reliable solution to this and would it add any lag? So, GameCube, easiest. Get yourself a Carby, which is the HDMI uh, GC video-based device that plugs into it. Then get any, uh, you know, retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC. Grab any HDMI to VGA converter linked there. And even grab an HDMI splitter from the same links as well. And what you'd be doing from there is taking HDMI out to the splitter, one of the splitters to a capture card, the other one going into the converter into your VGA monitor, and you're totally done. That is a zero latency added solution. I don't think you would even hit one millisecond of latency going through those devices. You could double check this with a time sleuth, of course, and you would get everything you need and it would work perfectly and it would look awesome. Now, for the Wii, if you're not using a Wii Dual, if you're using the component video output, or let's say you already have a bunch of component video cables for the GameCube, I think the same theory would work. You would just want to convert that from component to VGA. And there's a few devices out there. Uh, Jam, so Wakaba Video, LinuxBot3000, I forgot what the store is named now. I'll try to leave a link, but that would be the first one I would go to because they work great. Zero latency, and you're supporting the community. The second one I would go to, if that's out of stock, I would double check to see if the VGA monitors you're using accept RGBS. And here's the thing, a lot of VGA monitors will accept RGBS, almost none will accept 15 kilohertz RGBS. So sending it that 480p 31 kilohertz signal, that would work fine. In fact, I have two monitors here, one right on my uh, wall and one in the garage that do exactly that. So you could use the RetroTINK transcoder to go from the RetroTINK comp to RGB, and then you would just need a SCART to BNC cable. That would certainly work. If your VGA monitors don't accept RGBS, or if you don't know, which is always a a thing if you're running these tournaments, then I would just find any uh, higher named brand used ones on eBay. They should all be zero latency. I've never seen a transcoder ad lag before. Uh, you know, as long as it's just a transcoder, it doesn't say built-in scaling or anything like that. So, but I mean, the best way is to always double check with a time sleuth, period, regardless of anybody's advice. But I would just get a brand like Key Digital, uh, Geffen, Audio Authority. There was a bunch of really good brands back in the day. Um, I think those three are good, but find a higher name brand, buy it, double check it with a time sleuth. You might have some that are better quality than others, but you're not gonna, that's not going to affect, not quality that would affect a tournament or something like that. You know, maybe you're not going to get as super sharp of an image with this as with that, but if it's zero lag, whatever. Um, now, the second solution would be capturing 480p over component, then interlacing the signal to be played on composite. Is this solution even possible without adding half a frame of latency? Um, yes and no. I could definitely come up with a bunch of solutions that that would help, except here's the problem. Point number two that you made was reliability. So everything that I just explained, if you have a problem in the middle of the tournament, you power off your power strip with all the stuff plugged into it, you count to five, you power it back on, and it should be fixed period. Unless one of the devices is dead, that's it. Either that or unplug and replug too. With this other solution where you're converting the video signal, even if we found one that would be zero latency added, there's a lot of steps, especially if you're doing something like a GBS control where you're downscaling. That's a great solution, but think of it in the terms of a tournament, right? You're about to start a match, something glitches out, you power cycle, and then the GBS is no longer downscaling. So then you have to log into the app on your phone, you know, connect to it, set the settings. That, that two or three minute 
occurrence would feel like an hour if you're running a tournament and everybody's staring at you and the players are fired up, but now they can't play because you're rebooting. So while if you had a home solution like that, I could walk you through it. It's my personal opinion that I would not do that at a tournament in a live event. But hopefully that laid everything out nicely for you. If you have any questions, please let me know. And hopefully other people running Smash tournaments are in the same position would listen and be able to give their feedback or, or take that advice as well. Steve Wells has been having issues with those Porta-branded HDMI to component video converters, and they've been requiring power cycles just to keep them running and stuff like that. So they were looking for any other alternatives. I've heard this before from people, so I removed the link to that from the Amazon uh, site a while ago now, months ago, I think, and replaced it with other ones that have been tested and working. And this is what I always talk about when I say things like, be careful with these generic devices, buy them from places like Amazon where you could return them, because there's always a possibility, especially in the middle of a global part shortage, that what you get today isn't what you get tomorrow, or that you could buy 10 of them from the same link and three would be different than the rest of them or something like that. So this is why we need somebody like, uh, you know, consoles for you uh, and ManCloud to step up and make exactly this for us so that we could pay, spend a little bit more money up front, but never have to worry about it. Because I think there's almost an equal amount of people that would say, I just, I don't have time for this. Give, I, here's a hundred bucks, make it work now and never have me think about this again. I think there's the same amount of people that would say, give me the $20 one. If it doesn't work, I'll try two more before I get it right. Cause it's just going to cost a little bit of time, not extra money. So we need better solutions out there. But for now, what I would say is to go to the same link, retrorgb.link forward slash cheap deck and buy the non-porter one and see what you think. And if it doesn't work for you, return it and sorry for wasting some of your time. Definitely let me know though, because people, the one that I have added recently, a bunch of people said they are not having any of the issues they used to have with it. So Porta branded was great for years. I mean, years in a row. And now I think it just kind of, you know, they, they got what they could during the part shortage and they probably fell off and they might be back. So if you're listening to this a year from now, who knows, maybe their next line of products would be fixed. Also, Steve asked, have I watched for all mankind? No. It sounds familiar though, but no, sorry. Don't know what that is. David Sobel has a Dreamcast connected to a RetroTINK 5X via a VGA cable and an HD15 to SCART. And they had some issues at first with the image being shaky, but they went into the RetroTINK 5X settings and sent the minimum SOG level from 120 millivolts up to 140, and that fixed it. They're, they have a few guesses as to why they, that would happen, but they're curious if I had any thoughts of what would cause it to be shaky and why that would fix it. My guess, and this is just a guess, and Mike might roll his eyes if he heard me give this explanation, but the what's going on in the HD15 Discart is a passive sync combining circuit. So what I think would probably happen is if you went out and got an Extron RGB interface um, and then also got a BNC discard cable, and probably have to put a resistor in that. So that's a lot of extra devices, by the way. That's why the HD15 discard is this big and requires nothing. And now you have a, a box, a power supply, an extra cable. But I think that would just fix it because that is an active sync combining circuit. And I think the RetroTINK 5X sometimes will sync on that, sometimes won't. Maybe it's a part tolerance thing with the HD15 or the Dreamcast. But the bottom line is messing around with the settings that just says, hey, it's totally cool to sync on this, should completely solve that issue. And it's really just compensating for the way the sync is being combined, RGBHV to RGBS. So my suggestion would be, if this works for you, just leave everything alone. You're not going to hurt anything. It's not going to change anything. It shouldn't negatively affect anything else. It's weird that you went through that because I have the same exact setup. And uh, in fact, I tested that in the HD15 Discart video or maybe whichever one came out first. I think I tested it in one of the two videos just to show how that would work and it worked perfect for me. So there's, there could be some fringe case scenario that you have, but the bottom line is if it's working, um, I would just leave it alone. But I, I'm pretty sure the reason why you would have that issue at all is because of a passive sync combining circuit versus an active. But as you've already seen in your setup, I mean, you could obviously see the advantages of that one tiny little dongle versus two extra components, a bunch of wires, and a power brick to go into the wall along with it. 
Retro Music Dan recently finished a little retro cart setup, and they're enjoying some composite gaming goodness with it. The only issue they keep running into is the quality of some of the video cables can be a bit dodgy. Loose connectors and needing to mess with and reposition the cables until a signal comes through. This is the case on a Nintendo multi-out cable, a generic composite cable that they're using, and seemingly all of their PlayStation composite cables. Any advice for DIY fixes? It seems that to be a bit of a lottery and they don't fancy throwing money at the problem until they get lucky, especially with overpriced used but old official cables on eBay. Well, it depend it would really help if you've kind of figured out where the issue actually is. So, are you plugging it directly into your TV and your TV's RCA jack is the issue? Are you plugging it into a switch, especially a cheap manual composite video switch that you could just throw out and buy another one for 10 bucks? I hate throwing stuff out. In fact, I would say don't throw it out. Take it apart, leave it in a box and use it for parts, but throw it out of your setup at least. Um you know, or is it really just the cables that are the issue? And if it's the cables, is it the ground ring around it, or is it the signal pin in the middle? If the ground ring around it is a little loose, you could just crimp it ever so slightly with some pliers. If it's the, the pin in the middle, there are some things that you might be able to do with that as well, but, you know, that's a little trickier, and you might want to just kind of mess around with it to see what you get. But you really need to determine the exact problem in the setup in order to fix it. And, it, I mean, when you're talking about things that could be 30, 40 years old, it could very plausibly be that the cable, the RCA jack, and the switch all are worn down at the same time. But I would definitely try to figure out what the issue actually is and kind of go from there. And if it's in your TV, I mean, it's possible that you could open that up and replace the RCA connectors directly in there. Or even if not, you could possibly direct wire uh, to the board so you just have, like, composite video um, receptacle cables hanging out the back. There's a lot of different things that you could use, but you got to really figure out exactly what the issue might be. Cam just wanted to know what are the dimensions of the CRT bezel on the Astro City cab. They're for a 29-inch CRT, but for some reason they're having a hard time finding out that measurements. So from the outside edges, so from, you know, if you were to take the front of the Astro City out, and then you were to unbolt the black bezel that goes around and take that out and measure from the edges, or, you know, just put your measuring tape in there, but just I wanted to make sure you're visualizing the exact thing that I'm talking about. So the bezel itself is 25 and 7 eighths inches. I don't know what that is because they only teach us this crap in America. Not If you're the rest of the world, you have to use a conversion chart, but 25 and 7 eighths, uh, and that's it. And it's completely squared so that you could rotate it tate or not. Um, I tried doing that. I'll get to that in a second. Now, the inside of that bezel, if you're talking about what the, what part of the CRT is shown, is 22 inches by 16 and 5 eighths. So that is the inside of what portion of the CRT is exposed on the out of that. So that should be it. Um, I had some trouble with my Astro City stuff. So I guess I'll talk about it here a little bit because I wasn't sure how to present that to the public. But I got scammed by somebody named Yatan, who apparently has been scamming a lot of people in retro. And I got nailed because a bunch of people I know bought some cabs from him that showed up fine. You know, they all needed a little work, but that's exactly to be expected, especially when you ship any arcade cab. You could have a mint one, you put that thing on a truck, send it, you know, across the planet, there's going to be problems with it. There's just, there's no way around that. So I expected the same thing. I expected I was going to spend an, a ton of money and have this thing show up. And I expected Jose was going to have to come over and be like, well, you probably are going to need a recap. Here's what we need today. And what I received was a cab where the chassis wasn't even bolted down. So I took it out of the um, out of the, the full container that it sh- or the, um, what are they called? The pallet that it shipped on, the enclosed pallet. And as soon as I pulled it out, and I, because they have wheels on the back, I tilted it, I rolled it out, I put it down, and I heard clunk. The hell? So I unbolted it, and the chassis was just hanging. So luckily, luckily, it didn't get necked. None of that stuff happened. So I put it back, and we spent two or three hours when Jose, Artemio, Rollman, and a bunch of people were hanging out here working on it. And then Jose just came up the other day and spent quite a bit of more time working on it. We needed to replace the yoke connectors. We needed to recap the whole chassis, and it still didn't work right. And then I think I realized what happened. We got pictures and video of a working cab. And in fact, it was supposed to have two six-button controllers 
and this has two four-button controllers. I think I know what Yatan did because this is what a lot of people have been complaining. I think he took a CRT in a frame and grabbed a chassis, plugged it in, stuck it in a case, threw a controller board on it, put it in a pallet, and shipped it. Never even turned it on. And I think I got the wrong chassis for the wrong tube. I'm pretty positive the frame is wrong because when Jose and I tried to tate it, the frame was hitting the back of the, uh, of the case itself, of the Astra City cab. And obviously, you could tate those because I've seen a bunch of them done. So I'm pretty sure that none of these things match. And I think I got scammed. So I'm not really sure what to do because... Uh, he scammed a bunch of other people, and uh, I've heard some pretty horrible stories about about how that was all handled. So I'm not really sure what to do at this point. My goal was to have one Astro City and one new Astro City frame. I don't really care about the 24 hertz thing. I just liked that they were very similar but slightly different, so they matched, but they were both unique. One of them was going to be Tate mode with two four-button the other was going to be regular mode with two six buttons, and I wanted it to have nice CRTs in there, no burn-in, you know, no really dim or blurriness. That was my goal, and I don't even have one of them now because uh, because I kind of get screwed, and now I'm afraid to just buy any other one that I don't see in person. So if anybody knows how to get a hold of Yatan, um, hopefully he can get his head out of his ass and stop scamming people and send me a lot of my money back. Uh, I've already contacted PayPal, my credit card company, and a bunch of other places, and I think I'm just completely and totally screwed, to be honest. So I've heard rumors that he was kicked off a lot of forums. And, you know, why am I rambling about this now when there's been other scams in retro? Because a lot of the other scams in retro range from 20 bucks to, like, 150 And all of that sucks, you know? 20 bucks. It was terrible. You know, that's that's a, a burger and a beer. 120 is or 150 is is really terrible, especially if you're short on cash. But no no one is, you know, no one's going to lose their minds over 150 bucks. No one's going to stop eating over that. But what if you were a shop that just bought four cabs at almost 2 grand each? That's huge. Luckily, I only bought one, but that's still a lot more money than I have to lose. And on a personal note, I got to say, 99.9% of the stuff that I buy, while I enjoy a lot of it, I buy it just because I need it to do retro RGB. And a lot of the stuff I don't don't like or use, I just have to have them in order to do the tests and run it. This was the one thing that I bought that was 100% for me. Sure, I'll use it for testing JAMA stuff and probably do some streams, but I just wanted these two cabs, I only bought one of them, but I just wanted these two to have a home setup that I could enjoy, that I could just flick on a button and start playing and just not have to worry about anything. And Jose spent a lot of time trying to make that happen with me, but yeah, I got scammed hard. So Cam, if you have extra cabs, if you want, if you have any, any suggestions, I'm all ears on this one. Cam or anybody else, especially around driving distance of New York City, I'd love to be able to help. And I think the unfortunate solution is I'm probably going to have to disassemble this thing, put it in my truck, and drive it to somebody that has a bunch of these cabs so that we could swap out chassis, CRT, to see what matches and what works. The only good news is that after spending quite a bit of time on it, I now have a fully recapped mint condition chassis, just probably not the right one for the right tube that I have. So thanks to Jose for helping, but but yeah. So Cam, sorry to derail your question with... Uh, you know, with my rant and all the crap that happened this week. Um, but at the very least, I got you your dimensions. <laughs> Retro Bubba wants to know, what are the benefits of doing an RGB bypass on a one-chip O2 Super Famicom? Very few. And I, th- I'm, I try to be very clear about this. I don't want to mislead anybody. But your SNES minis obviously don't output RGB, so you would need to add the bypass board in order to re-enable that. But the one chips output RGB with just a cable, and the video quality is awesome. So, I mean, you don't really need to do anything to it. Now, if you're absolutely crazy like I am, and Super Nintendo is your favorite console, and you will do anything to get just the littlest bit of better video quality out of it, yeah, do a bypass, and you might notice a difference. If you have a fully calibrated BVM, you probably would. Consumer-grade TV, probably not at all. 
Uh, or if you're going through a RetroTINK 5X into a beautiful 4K TV, you'd probably notice a little bit of a sharpness difference. But that's, that's really it. It's really just for the crazy people like me. Now, the reason that I put the mod, those guides up and the reason that I've always talked about it and how I enjoy it is because the other added benefit is you're skipping a lot of components on that motherboard. So as some of the capacitors on the AV circuit start to age, maybe your video quality might go down. None of that stuff would matter because you're pulling the signals directly from the main chip off of the motherboard, running them over the board onto this brand new chip and this brand new bypass board. So that's one of those things where you might get a small boost in quality today, but it might be, you know, might be better for the long run. But that's really just a bonus if you're a crazy person like me that wants the sharpest image out of your Super Nintendo. So I, hopefully I'm clear about all that stuff. And I'll, as I redo the website, I'll make sure to be extra, extra clear about that. I think what would really benefit is whenever any of the solutions for the non one chip, so any model before the one chips, um, have very soft video from a Super Nintendo. That is the one that I think I would recommend anybody with some patience to, to do because those would definitely be a significant upgrade, not a, t a small one like this. But I don't recommend any of it right now because all of these solutions are still in testing and even the ones that are completed aren't quite the total solution we were all waiting for. So unless you're a tinkerer, I wouldn't mess with it at all. Just wait a little while you know, as the part shortage eats eats up, eases up a little more, we should start to see these projects come to life. But for now, right now, I, I just kind of would leave your original Super Nintendos alone and your one chips, probably just leave it alone. If if you had any concern, do a cap replacement because it's not too hard. And that way you could, you know, make sure that the original isn't leaking. You don't have to worry about the original caps and you might get a small boost in quality just from doing that. But Honestly, if it's working, you don't have to do anything. Just, you know, as as always, pop your case open, look in with a flashlight, and make sure you don't see any leaking caps. But if that's not it, then I, I probably wouldn't do anything these days and just wouldn't worry about it. One last one from Oliver that might apply to anybody who is putting their CRT in a corner or in a cutout or anything. Oliver knocked a hole in their wall to build around a CRT recessed setup, which is something that I remember seeing quite a bit growing up for people that wanted to have a nice system but didn't want a, a CRT sticking out in the middle of the room. Oliver was able to do that building their own retro gaming room. And the question is, do they have to worry about heat in a setup like this? And the unfortunate answer is you're going to have to measure to see. Um, I would do something like use that CRT in the middle of the room, leave it running like a test pattern or not like a, a movable test pattern, like the scrolling test on the 240p test suite, watch a couple movies in a row, whatever. But check the temperature. If you have one of those temperature guns, or especially if you have any of those thermal imaging things, which I still need to buy one of those. I just think that's such a cool toy to have. But check the heat on it and then put it in. Uh, and do the same thing and monitor the heat as you're watching a movie, playing a game, whatever else, and see how much it changes. And it's going to go up, but if it goes up 10 degrees and you check out the spec sheet and it's well within the use tolerance of it, I wouldn't worry. Now, if it starts to go up a little bit, you might just want to build some cleverly placed exhaust fans in, in that. So you would have to think about it. Hot air rises, so you'd probably want the fans on the top and you'd want it angled out so it goes completely out of the compartment. Um, and you would probably want to do it in a way where you can't really see or hear them, so you'd want some slow-moving AC fans probably towards the back, but you don't want them all the way up against the back because then it's harder to pull the air forward. So you could kind of mess with that and plan around it, but that's kind of what I would do. I would just make sure they're not distracting, either visually or, or any of the noise coming out of it. But you might not need that at all. So this could very well be one of those try it out and see scenarios. Um, and the, the type of CRT, the size, all of that would make a big difference too. Because I think a lot of consumer CRTs were designed to be done to do things like that. And I don't think the professional video monitors were. However, a lot of them were designed to be uh, put in racks kind of right up against each other. So 
have to try it and see. But it's a good question. And anybody that's like kitty quartering a CRT with a bunch of stuff around it or building, um, you know, kind of like what kind of like this, you know, building a whole setup around it might want to do that if you see any heat issues. I didn't do it in this setup because everything's open. So while, yes, things are above and below it, it's there, you know, there's enough space to like sort of scoop behind it in there. there there's just so much space going on that it's not a big deal. And in fact, the heater is even back there, but I keep this room pretty cold in the winter. So it's, uh, I, I don't think I have anything to worry about. You probably wouldn't either, but since you're spending all this time on it, you know, it'd probably be worth just kind of doing a temperature sensor test. Well, that's it for this time. As always, if you have any questions, wherever it is that you support, please post the question in the latest Q&A post. This is both because I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post, but mostly because I love doing this in real time like you saw here, just scrolling through, answering questions, and being very laid back and, and chill about all of this stuff. I like these to be kind of relaxed. So any question you have, wherever it is you support, put them in the latest Q&A post. And if for whatever reason I miss your question, which is always a mistake, either just message me directly or ask again in next week's. Because what does tend to happen is sometimes this will be rendering going up to YouTube and a new question will come in after I've already shot it. So if that's the case, just re-ask the question or DM me. And as always, and especially thank you to all of you for your support. I really love getting the chance to do this. I like being able to try to help people and, you know, keep spreading the word, please. Cause and, you know, you know how it works these days. You got to grow in order to, to, to maintain. So thank you very much. And I'll see you next week.